This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Doug Collum. Hey, everybody. This is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM Channel 132. We are, as usual, broadcasting live here from uh, downtown San Francisco. I'm your host, Doug Collum. We've got an interesting show today. The first hour, we'll be speaking with Doug Buescher, who's the CEO of LeadSpace, a a leading customer data platform uh, for B2B sales and marketing. Our show broadcasts live every Monday at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific, that's 7 p.m. Eastern, um, to um, enlighten your commuting hour. We're joined now in the studio by our first guest, Doug Buescher. Doug's got a very interesting career path. I have to say he's been a heavyweight um, in the marketing space. He's been the CMO of both Skype and Salesforce, so we'll hear more about that. Doug, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you very much for having me, Doug. So um, start us off. What is LeadSpace? What is LeadSpace? LeadSpace, we're a customer data platform for B2B sales and marketing, as you uh, rightly pointed out in the intro. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I've been a marketer for a long time. And really, if you think about the marketing challenge that people have, it's really about how do they get to know their customers. So uh, my first job, and we'll sure talk about it, um, back in the day was working for Unilever, and we were selling shampoo. But what we really wanted to do was think about how do we understand who we're selling our products to? How do we give them really the product that they want and engage with them? Well, fast forward 20 years, now we're in this space where we've got all these technology companies, all these business-to-business companies, they need to do the same thing, really figure out how to understand who their customers are, gather all the intelligence they can about them. And then what we see going on with the evolution of AI is then put intelligence, AI kind of rules on top of it to figure out how do they drive engaging, relevant, and useful content to those customers. So we create a platform. We help companies like Microsoft, HP, Salesforce, and others do that. So hopefully they can build really good, engaging programs for their customers. So you've come a long way since Unilever. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. You know, Unilever's doing pretty well still these days, despite some of their financial results. But yeah, my my first job was selling shampoo. Uh, so yeah, back in those days, there where, was no where are you from? Where are you from? So I I actually am from Oakland originally. I was born in Oakland, the Bay area. as in the East Bay, just across the wow. bay right here. I like to say I'm one of the few genuine Californians that I bump into That's in San a great, Francisco. Great accent you picked up on the way. <laughs> Well, my parents uh, moved back to the UK, obviously, to get the accent because for some reason, English people sound more intelligent. <laughs> uh, but I, I grew up in the UK. I went to uh, university. I went to Oxford there. I studied physics, uh, which a lot of people think is kind of interesting. Very complimentary to marketing, right? Yeah. You know, there's a surprising number of physicists <laughs> in marketing. But I, I, I would say the following. If you think about the scientific method, right, the scientific method is about... I make some observations, you know, I I see a ball rolling down a hill or something. Then I make a hypothesis, right? I, you know, Newton's laws of gravity, and then I test it, right? And that is the scientific method. Well, if we think about marketing, I do the same thing. I go out there and I run some focus groups and I say, hey, people are interested in, you know, a dandruff shampoo or something. And then I'll build a product, like a hypothesis of how the market works. (laughs) And then I'll go and test it and see if people buy. So I, th- I think there's some analogies, especially in a much more data-driven marketing world in which we live. I mean, I, I'm going to challenge you on that as okay. we go forward. I, I always think of marketing as kind of a voodoo art. 
but um, I'm intrigued to hear more about this. But t t talk more about your work experience. So you started off at Unilever. Yeah. And that what you started in marketing was that something that you knew coming out of school that you thought, hey, I'm going I'm to be a just a, a killer marketing guy. So it's interesting. My grandfather started a company. And so when I came out of university, I actually had a very single-minded view, which is which is the job that is most likely to land me in the CEO space? Because I always knew I wanted really? to do that. Yeah. yeah. And back, I'll share a little bit of my age now. Yeah, right, in okay. the late 80s, early 90s, yeah. when I was, I was doing that, the number one job that, that CEOs had was as a brand manager, if you remember the days of brand managers. Yeah. And so that's why I took that job, and I went and joined what's called the Unilever... Um, management development scheme as a brand manager, basically, yes, is the basis to say, how does that help me get the skills that I want to get in order to get to that end point of being a CEO? Uh, and I think back in those days, you know, the brands were truly their own little worlds, and you really were like the little CEO of your area. Little fiefdom, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, the world's changed, and we can talk more about that. Yeah. I think marketing's actually back in its heyday again, but it definitely went through a few years. But But I did that for five years based in London, um, selling shampoo and cosmetics. I'm just curious, what was the name of the shampoo? Was, would I recognize uh, it? Well, so, <laughs> so it's called Timothée Shampoo, which you've probably never heard of. No. It was the second biggest shampoo in the world after one you will know, which is Pantene. Oh, sure. Um, and uh, it was, you know, just on a slight diatribe, a classic case of marketing. If you, if, I mean, you like I have been around a little bit. We used to, when we washed our hair, only wash your hair once every three or four days. Do you remember that? It yeah, was like yeah, because yeah. it was perceived as bad. So Timothée's marketing, its value proposition, was all about so mild you can wash your hair as often you want. Now, as you say, we often think of marketing as this voodoo art of ads and branding and stuff. Yeah. But the real insight was to get you to understand you well enough to change your behavior to say, actually, this isn't bad for me at all, so I wash it. And so if you looked at the usage, the amount of shampoo that was sold just went through the roof. It was incredible. And then Pantene, as I'm sure many of the listeners actually use Pantene, took it to the next stage. Not even, first it was bad for you, then it wasn't bad for you. And then Pantene said, I've got this pro-vitamin stuff. It's actually good for you. So Now it's a wellness product. Correct. Yeah. It's very simple marketing, <laughs> but very effective. That's great. So Dow Forward, because um, I know you continued on this marketing path yeah. with a vengeance going forward. Right. So then I went I went to business school. I went to INSEAD in France. Oh, you um, did? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that was a year-long program. And I came out of that, and we can talk more about why, but it was mid-90s. I really wanted to get out to San Francisco. But I think for a lot of business schools, you get one year, and then you kind of need to round out and finish your education. So I went to McKinsey. I was yep. five years at McKinsey. As a as management consultant. As a management consultant. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, in those five years, really built on that skill set and did a lot of work with, and in good McKinsey ways, I can't talk about my clients, um, but did a lot of work with some of the leading brands in Seattle, like two of them, or in other places up and down the West Coast on how was the world of digital, i.e. all the data that was being right, produced right. by the internet and usage and things, transforming the way that companies did marketing. Uh, and it was a very, and so that was called the CRM practice, customer relationship management. Back in the early days of Salesforce, back in the advent of, you know, companies like, you know, f first things like Auto by Tele, if you remember them. Mm -hmm. But then more and more companies starting to adopt 
the web and online and, and all the, that kind of stuff. The digital underpinnings of mar- of this voodoo art called marketing, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was yeah. like I, I remember going to the NRF, the National Retail Foundation, yeah. and presenting at their conference. And the discussion was, is email going to stick around? <laughs> oh, that, that's great. <laughs> but, um, you that's know, great. so yeah, really interesting times. Go for jump forward again. So yep. after a year at McKinsey, then what? So five years at five years at McKinsey. Oh, five years. One year yeah. in London, four years here. Um, and when, then when did you make the jump to the Bay Area? You know, I the day I started at McKinsey, I said I'd like to transfer. And one of the things I learned from McKinsey is they have incredibly strong set of values, and one of their values is one firm. So they they don't have local profit centers and things. They they try and be a company on a global basis. Monolithic. Yep. Well, that sounds very negative the way you put it, but I think it, but a single big. entity, yeah, okay, big, okay. <laughs> right? Um, but very, you know, I, th- I think a very strong set of cultural values. So I, I transferred very early on, and it was mm-hmm. in the time when McKinsey couldn't hold on to people because everyone was going to, you know, Webvan or Pets.com yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, so I made that transition, and I was here for four years. And, and because my family was from here and I had a U.S. You know, passport from being born here, it was a very easy transition. Yeah. So I know I know you've got um, both Skype and Salesforce in yeah. your, on your resume. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I did then. I sort of did a few other kind of marketing jobs. I took on the CMO thing, um, and then I guess it was in the early around 2011 was the time that um, Skype came knocking at the door. Um, and Skype at that point used to be part of eBay. Uh, and I remember this, yeah. Yeah, it had just been spun out of eBay and Silver Lake and Andreessen Horowitz, as I think their second investment, had decided really? to invest yeah. in it. And uh, and one of the things that Skype at that point in time, and I'm sure everyone on this knows Skype very well, um, was very much about how do we get back to our product roots and how do we continue to innovate around the product. So I joined at that point to run what was marketing, but also really kind of the business development side of the house. I moved to Luxembourg because Luxembourg is where Skype is based for both tax and also regulatory reasons. Um, and I worked for the company through the sale to Microsoft. So that was a bit, I assume that was a bit of a rocket ship ride, wasn't it? It was, it was fantastic. We were adding the number of users equivalent to the size of a city like Tokyo every 20 days. Oh my gosh. When you think about it, yeah. we were the largest international long distance carrier by miles and it was a brand that literally was a verb right and it's so exciting I, to work that's pretty amazing that verbs, yeah that's right you know to skype somebody and things and and we could do some really interesting marketing around that as well so you know one of the things we did with, with oprah is actually one of the ways that the brand originally grew and it was that we went on oprah and people started sharing <laughs> their stories and things um but then on top of that we did a lot of work with cnn so i think you'll see a lot now of the if you watch, you know, radio programs, TV programs, where it says, in the, you know, brought to you by Skype, that was a very important marketing activity to us. To so, do you, uh, show so, so Doug, do you do you claim some credit for that? I mean, uh, that's not a facetious question. I mean, you're you're in the mm-hmm. head of the, this whole thing on marketing, and suddenly you're on this rocket ship ride, and you're adding customers like crazy. I mean, you assume I assume that some of that organizational force came from you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, clearly to build a great product and we're in the B2C land now, consumer products, a product like Skype is fundamentally viral, right? So the reason it works is because I use it and I get you onto it. So I'm not going to claim that we grow that fast, not for marketing activities, but because of the way that the product is built and the virality. That being said, 
one of the secrets that made Skype su super successful was there's a little box in the corner which effectively operates like an ad where we could cross out different features, mm. we could show people new ways to use the product, all that kind of stuff. And just like Facebook, which I studied a lot when I was at another company called MIG33, most successful viral companies have a route that people follow to be successful. So in Facebook, what they know is like when you first upload a photo, that makes you very sticky. Same thing with Skype. We knew that if you joined a group, then you were going to use the product a lot more. So it's insights like that, again, that come from the data that you then help through product design, through advertising, just through positioning in gender that really makes them mainstream. So Skype was acquired by, <coughs> sorry, Salesforce? Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft, sorry. At what year? Do you remember? You're asking me hard questions. Yes, about, I'm testing About you. seven years ago. Okay, so, so, and so did, you follow, did you follow Skype into Microsoft? No, I, I never formally joined Microsoft at that point. I left at the point that it was acquired and brought into Microsoft. And so then what? I'm still, I'm still pursuing the thread of your yeah, career Yeah, so path then or... I'm stuck in Luxembourg, decide yeah. I want to come back to San Francisco, yeah. even though Luxembourg is a lovely place. So I came back, and, and I knew a lot of the Salesforce people over many years, I mean, I'd known them when I was at Skype and, you know, we were using Salesforce in terms of trying to build our business side of the house. And so I just reached out to some people at Salesforce and said, I'm back. I think you have a brilliant company. I, I like business to business marketing because I think it's a much more thoughtful process. And and the opportunity to came up and to go and run marketing at that point for a product called Chatter, if you remember Chatter. I do, yeah. And if you, Chatter was for for business to business products, <laughs> things change so fast in this industry. Everyone was trying to figure out how do I incorporate social elements, mm -hmm. right? Into business to business products, right? And so chatter really for Salesforce was that component about how do I book conversation? Very similar actually to what Skype was doing on the business to consumer side with just regular consumers. How do we build those kinds of, of products into Salesforce? And at the same time, it was very much the heart of the brand. And if you remember, Salesforce in those days was called, you know, was all about the um, social enterprise. Yeah, I do remember. And that was, yep. you know, really about this, the social aspect. So it was exciting to join because it was such an important part of the Salesforce brand. And so you, did you come on board at Salesforce as the chief marketing officer there? As no, well? I started uh, to run marketing for Chatter. We launched communities, which I still think is the most successful product Salesforce has launched. We actually, now there's the community cloud. It's a whole cloud in and of itself. Did a few other things there, and then I was asked to take on the CMO job, which I did, which is That's uh, kind of cool. That's cool. I mean, it's, <laughs> it looks great on a resume for sure. It's huge, in fact. It's, well, yeah. Um, it, it, especially living in a city like San Francisco, it is such a tentpole. I mean, it's the largest employer of in technology everybody, in San Francisco. Everybody orients around that. Now you have the yeah. Salesforce Tower and everything. Yes. And and the company, obviously led by Mark, but the company is pretty innovative in a lot of the ways it thinks about marketing. I think, you know, if you just look at the whole property strategy now, it, it's a really innovative way to think about marketing as a B2B organization. But what was still interesting, and, and we sometimes forget this, is after I took that job, I was super happy as CMO of Salesforce, I would still fly back to London and I'd see my friends in London and they go, who? Right. And, really? we, and yeah. we live, you know, we talk a lot about this bubble in the Bay Area. Yeah. People, you know, thinking that the center of the world is based, you know, just in this area. But it was it was a real eye opener for me to just remember, unlike Skype, where, you know, it's called Skypey 
right? Because it's really, <laughs> truly global, right? Uh, you know, Salesforce was not well known and that was part of the marketing challenges. How do we take it much more broad than just, you know, the tech heart? And I, I think it's been very successful as a company doing that. Last step, which is how do, the, the leap from Salesforce to lead space. Yeah. I mean, I think at some point you must have come to the conclusion, hey, I think I can do the CEO thing. <laughs> You've done it enough in terms of product management. Um, yeah, I mean, exactly. I, at some point, it was the time to make the jump. Where was it? A, I mean, the assumption is that you were restless. You were always kind of at least uh, angling toward this notion that you could be the, you know, the lead guy in your own company. Was that the idea? Yes. Um, I mean, Salesforce has a habit of reorganizing itself a lot. Yeah. Right? It's just part of the style of the company. But absolutely, I think, you know, you've got to, when you make that jump to a CEO, you've got to say, okay, what's the right situation? Where have I got the most chance of success? And timing. Right. And get the timing right. Yeah. And, and I'd seen what was, and we can talk more about this, but I'd seen what was going on in the industry. And I'm selling two marketeers, an audience I know very well. And you're right, I felt very confident about my ability to step into that CEO gig. And then finally, yeah, you know, I'd done all these companies, I'd done all these CMO things, and there was nothing that really got me up in the morning excited to do another marketing yeah. job. I wanted to go and take the CEO gig on. So that's a, that's a nice segue to step back, and that is um, the state of the industry. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it kind of level set on this in terms of the artificial intelligence underpinning of... B2B customer data platforms? Yeah. Well, first, let me say I think that I'm a strong believer that AI is going to transform so many different parts of business in yeah. our economy. Um, and, uh, you know, this is just one piece of that. But I think AI now has just become, it's it means become everything. Ubiquitous. And it covers a AI. lot of waterfront right. for sure. So, and I don't, you know, and there's a whole general AI discussion, but it's very specific AI. And for me, AI is really about, at its heart, intelligence and automation. So the founder of LeadSpace um, is a really interesting guy. He comes out of the Israeli military, and, and I can talk about that. But at the heart of the value proposition was this idea that if you look at a good sales guy, then what, that, what do they do? They go and if they're going to go and try and sell something to somebody, they go and look at all the databases they have, you know, whether it's their internal data sets, then they go and do a web search and then they go and look in some other third party databases. And Tr then they trying to gather information, gather that's information specific to right. their target customer. Exactly. And yeah, figure okay. out what does all of this mean? Right. And if I'm going to call this guy, A, should I call him? Should I waste my time? And B, if I'm going to talk to him and make it a relevant conversation for him, what should I talk to him about? Right, and when and all this kind of stuff. And at the heart of what we do is to automate that process. We gather all these different data sets together, right? And obviously we can gather many more than a person can do. We use AI, effectively intelligence, sitting on top of that in the same way a person would to say, well, if I know that about you and that about you, maybe that means you're interested in that or those kinds oh. of things, right? And then finally we make sort of recommendations in terms of the kinds of things that you should do to that person. So the that themes can, and messaging that will resonate the most. Absolutely. Yeah. To the customer, right? Because yeah, we've yeah. also got to remember at the end of the day, if there's no benefit for the end user, we shouldn't be doing it. Right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so for people who are just joining us, we're, our guest this hour is Doug Buescher, who's the CEO of LeadSpace, which is a B2B customer data platform. And this is Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM channel 130, 132. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, so we're talking about the industry and and the art, the science of marketing and and using the the uh, digital data that's available out there, yeah. all the due diligence and all the research necessary to refine the message going out to customers, and that's and that's become the kind of where, where the whole industry is going. Well, so let's just look at B to C. So business to consumer, so consumer products is usually ten years ahead of business to business. See, I don't I don't know that. I mean, I, I was going to ask. I don't want to spend too much time, but I would like to hear from you. What is the fundamental? I mean, I understand business to business, business to consumer, but what are the fundamental differences that you see from a marketing standpoint? Yeah, so so there's a few. So if you look at the business to business, you tend to have, if I'm selling you a $10,000 or $100,000 server, if I'm Oracle, you tend to go through a much more thoughtful process to evaluate it. So there's many touch points. A longer sales cycle. Longer sales cycle. On top of that, there's fewer examples. And so, you know, you might only sell 100,000 servers a year, not like Skype, 20 million every yeah, yeah. 10 yeah, days. Yeah. I, right? get that. I get that. So you've got less data to work from. And you've got real people involved in it. So the sales guy at the end of the day, whatever we may say, is really important in selling that service. So, so what we saw in B2C is the emergence of these huge companies, Facebook, Google, have been built on the idea of programmatic advertising. Take all the data, figure out what ads to show you, and show you those ads. $180 billion. So it readily market. lends itself more to automation. That is very clear in B2C. Yeah, right? okay. And plus you have this closed loop, right? I, you, know, yep. you show somebody an ad, they go and buy something, you get that data, and you close the loop. Yep. Hopefully that's got good it. for people. Yeah. In B2B now, I've got a more complicated thing because it takes me eight months. There's many, many touch points along the way. There's people involved in the process, and I have less data. It's called a small data problem. Mm -hmm. So the way that that gets transformed with our AI effectively, with algorithms and big data and learning, is a slower process, but just as powerful. But it's going to take longer to get there, and so you need more sophisticated techniques and algorithms. And that like relates to what um, the founder of Leadspace was doing. So let's talk about lead space then, because yep. enough. Of, I mean, so we've been at a hundred thousand feet talking about the yep. industry and automation and uh, ways of automating the process to resonate, to, to refine messages. Lead space. What what is it? I mean, what makes it unique in terms of? Uh, yeah. I, so I assume there have got to be a bunch of other companies out there that are doing something similar to what you're doing. The, there are. There's several, and that is good because it sort of. Keeps justifies you, keeps, the market. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're the only one out there, sometimes you're like, either this is a brilliant or idea, <laughs> or I'm a very, very lonely. stupid idea. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that. But the the founder, a guy called Amnon Mashur, still actively involved in the company. Before this, he worked for um, the NSA in Israel, effectively. Mm -hmm. And if you think about where a lot of actually this kind of intelligence come from, it comes from that. So, so he was. He likes to say that after 9/11 happened. He was the guy who got the call and said, make sure that doesn't happen here and work for a group called the 8200 if you've watched. I have heard about this, yeah. Watch Fowder, you know yeah, all yeah. about these guys. Um, and really doing the same kind of modeling, right? Taking information that's available on the public and social web, right? So, you know, social kind of data unstructured, combining that with, let's say, first party data like Interpol databases and stuff. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that the NSA has that others don't. And putting that together to solve this problem. And finding a terrorist is very similar to finding your buyer. Same, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's a great analogy. And I'm taking notes here. Yeah, yeah, and a few things that I can talk about. So if I'm in a room of 1,000 people, 
I actually, the B2C problem, again, the difference, is to know a little bit more about everyone. The terrorist problem is to know who are the 10 bad guys and make sure you don't miss any. And it's very similar, actually, from how a B2B buyer will think about it. So there's a lot of the same thinking and, and, and domain and, and knowledge yeah. that has come out of there and then got applied to this problem of finding the right buyer in B2B sales and marketing. Lead space. I mean, just quickly yeah. a snapshot so people can understand what, what kind of company we're talking about. How many employees? Where is it located? Is it funded? When was it formed? I mean, kind of the basics, the a profile yeah, for the sure. company. Yeah, so so that was that was the founding in yeah. Israel. In um, what year? 2010, okay. the company really yep. got going in the, the, the product that we're selling today. Uh, and we're still, you know, half the company is still in Israel, um, just outside Tel Aviv, which I think is... is you know, people know is the startup nation. So it's yes. a really yep. innovative, a lot of great technologists and all that kind of stuff. But as is often the case, then you need to build your front office, your sales and your marketing, your success and so forth here. And we've done that in San Francisco. We also have a team in Denver. So across those three locations, we're about 80 people today, 50-50 between both countries. Um, and a 10-hour time difference, which also always makes for interesting uh, discussions and, and, and venture backed Doug and venture backed so uh, battery ventures vertex and JVP were the three venture capitalists in the a and B rounds and all, then, all, all great names I mean they're all top-tier VC firms yeah yeah and work together a lot so they you know I think JVP is one of the most successful vertex obviously was in ways which is still yeah, one yeah. of the great and battery is a global fund that I think yeah many people well know. known here in Santo Road yeah um, and then our capital came in to lead our are Series C, and they're a growth equity investor. So difference between the venture-backed, which is really kind of product market fit. So, you know, does this product meet the needs of the customer? And then the growth equity guys coming in to drive real scaling of the business, which is where we are right now. And where, I'm curious, because I've not heard of Arrowroot Capital before. Yeah. Where are they based? So they're down in LA. Uh -huh. um, so it's also, we wanted to bring on a US-based investment group. They're relatively new in the space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, growth equity, has like the really huge guys, as you know, you know, yeah. the Excels and people like that. And then they're really sort of really coming in at the earlier stage of the market, but they've been a great partner with us so far. So, so can you share, I mean, is it public information how much money you've raised to date? So we've raised just over $50 million to date. Well, that's a, that's a lot of, uh, that keeps you on your toes. You've got some interested investors <laughs> sitting around the table for sure. Um, tell me, um, you know, one of the questions that comes up is, you're talking about B2C and B2B, mm -hmm. and you're talking about making sure you can identify the 10 bad guys in the room in an audience of 1,000. Yep. Is that, again, I know a, a little bit about marketing. Is that enough, really, you're qualifying leads to come into the sales funnel? But once they're in the funnel, I'm assuming that personal relationships come back into importance as part of the sales process? Mm -hmm. Or do I have this... No, I, I think that's fairly accurate. Let me, let me give you an example. Of yeah, a use case a, would be great. Yeah, a, a customer uses this. And I, I use a very large enterprise technology company, which okay. uh, does this. So if you go onto their website, and you might be interested in one of the many products they sell, sell and you put your email address in, in your company, you are identifying yourself and saying, tell me about your products. That will then come to us, and we'll do all of this data mining and crunching and recommendations, and come back and say, okay, this guy is probably interested in this product. And also on top of that, 
this is the right way to talk to them. So they have these different personas, like many marketers do. They have about 12. Mm -hmm. So let's engage them with this stuff that will resonate in the way that they like to consume information. So that was a very simple thing. Happens in a matter of microseconds. So that's the automated part. That's entirely automated that puts them into one of these different engagement tracks, right? They've seen a doubling of engagement just from that one thing, right? So wow, twice yeah. as many people are now looking at their material and engaging with it, which if you can imagine at a company that's selling billions of dollars, that's a massive uplift. Now, you're right. That is just what people call the top of the funnel, yep. getting people into a conversation. It will also say... This guy, because of other information that we can get, or guy I use generically, male or female, man or woman, yep. um, actually right now is the right time to reach out to them because they probably want to have a proper conversation. So they then push that as a, what the industry term is, marketing qualified lead or sales qualified lead to a sales guy so they can have that conversation. But yes, then the sales guy still has to do his magic. But as we know from Glenn Gary going lost, they just want good leads. So... At the end of the day, if we can give them or if the company can give them using us better qualified people for those sales guys to engage with and the collection of people in that company who are making a buying decision, it's a, it's a big win for them. Talk about competition. What is it that makes, that makes lead space unique? I mean, as we covered, as we talked about before, AI, artificial intelligence, covers a lot of waterfront. Everybody's using that word today mm. as a way of distinguishing their business model from everyone else's. Talk about lead space. What, what are the points yeah. of excellence that you guys bring to the table? Well, in some ways, we're lucky in that some of our competitors are really big, old-fashioned companies like Experian, you know, people that you've known for a very long yeah. period of time. And as we've seen, some of them have struggles with new technology and so forth. So first and foremost, you know, what we're doing is the next generation of the way that these companies need to think. So that's the first thing. And that puts us already in a distinct advantage when we work with many of our customers because they're looking for the latest technology and platforms and things. But when you really get into the heart of it, I think there's a couple of things that, that we're really staking our yeah. place and saying this is what's going to make us different. So the first is that at the end of the day, if you're going to be a customer data platform, having more data, having a breadth of data, being able to consume many data sources is key. Uh, and I think first and foremost today, we have the broadest set of different data sources to sort of aggregate together, right? And most of our customers, I think their mindset has shifted from, let me try and find one really good data set to let me try and gather as many different data sets as I can and figure out what's the best of. I think it's a big change that we've seen in society as a whole. And then what we're also starting to see is some of our large enterprise customers, we now actually have seven out of the top 10 software companies as wow. our customers, are starting to go that's and called, say- That's called endorsement. That yeah. is, I know. Yeah. Uh, they're starting to go and say, look, in order for us to buy your data, you need to put it through LeadSpace as the platform because it's too hard for them. We go to so many of our customers and they go and try and buy this data and then they stick it in some database and then they're like, well, what did I do with that? It doesn't mean anything. And I've got all this. And if you go to many people in this space, they're always complaining about the quality of their data. And the reason is because they've just got and bought lots of junk. So, so they need something that actually brings it together in a much better And that's what LeadSpace does. And it shapes, do. it slices and dices data and distills it and presents it in a comprehensible fashion. Correct. And what, what one of our customers calls a single source of truth. 
so that you can rely on that single piece of information to gather the best of, and you don't have to go and do that work. In fact, we ran a survey among, among many of our um, customers and, and prospects and just the marketing industry as a whole, and one of the things that we found is the number one complaint of marketing people is that they spend too much time managing data. Because marketeers came into this job, like me back in the day, yeah. to do great programs, to do that voodoo of marketing, as you called it earlier on. And in fact, half their time is spent you know, running spreadsheets and trying to figure out why the data's here and there. And our goal, if you see our bigger goal, is really to liberate those marketeers from the chore of dealing with data. They get too close to the trees. They need to step back and look at the forest. Well, and they need the trees, unfortunately, yeah. because yeah. they've still got to build boats, right? But you know, at the end of the day, if they have some platform that can solve that, like you know, has happened generally across many different industries and technology, we're enabling them to go back and be great marketers. So, so Doug, disabuse me of the notion about voodoo art. <laughs> I mean, where is the science in this? Is it in fact, can you create a direct correlation causing the effect? Data that's sliced and diced and presented according to this template is going to yield more qualifying leads and therefore is going to yield higher product sales. I mean, is there, is there a correlation there that you can? Absolutely, as close as you can get you know, within reason yeah. in this kind of space. You, and the way that that works, for example, one of the products we sell is an ABM product. What's that? Uh, Account-based marketing. Okay. It's a, That's fine. I, I can yeah. talk more about that <laughs> That's in a minute. Okay. Let's right? And so what we do is we literally will give a sales team a set of leads, a set of people, let's say, to go and or companies to go out and reach out to. And we won't tell them what lead space said was good and bad. And then we see what happens three months later and what we unerringly find is that the ones that we s predicted would be good are good. Right? So, so the control group are human beings, and then the, the, the variable is your, your automated black box technology that is slicing and dicing data. I've, I've, words aren't quite correct, but yeah. the notion is that you guys consistently outperform the, the, manually, uh, the manually manipulated data. Is that Ab right? Absolutely, right? Because they don't have a process to figure out good and bad. They just tend to do everyone, right? And it's hard, right? Because it takes, back to our earlier comment, takes some time and all this kind of stuff. But we, we have the evidence, evidence for that. That being said, as, as a marketeer by 22 years of training, I do at the same time think, and back to your voodoo point, that <laughs> marketeers aren't just paint-by-numbers people. So you do the great creativity has to be combined with the analytics. And you know, I think there's too many people today who think that marketing is an analytic discipline, and it's not. It's a creative discipline. And I think you've seen that in how even companies like Facebook and Google and so forth have changed the way that they do marketing. Um, you know, I think back to the Oreo ad during when the Super Bowl went out. There was no machine that figured out that just when it went out, you should say, I can't remember what it was, but it was huge on social media. You needed a really sharp, quick-witted marketing person to put that out, and it was brilliant marketing. So, and you guys, LeadSpace brings both to the table, both both the data, the data manipulation and the creativity. Is that? No, we bring the data platform. But the, the, the resident company has to actually right. bring the creativity. Because they've okay. hired a lot of people who that's what they want to do, I is get do it. great marketing. Okay. And so we free them up to do that. So you, anyway, so that's, so that's one key point of differentiation. I think the other, the other key point of differentiation is just this ontology, which is a, a complicated word 
that a lot of the sort of data scientists use about how do you create information and graphs and all that kind of stuff so that customers can use that information uh, uh, more smartly. So uh, I, I'll give you a simple example of this. You know, uh, one of our customers is Marketo. Mm -hmm. And as you, well known, well known, uh, just bought by Adobe, uh, another of our customers. But, um, and what you, uh, you know, they go after demand gen professionals, right? Or they go after people who run marketing automation. But most of those people actually have the title VP of marketing. Yeah. So the question then is, how do you see through the title? It's what, how do you gather this other information? How do you build an ontology to understand who you are, the company that you are, so that you can be more precise in the kinds of things you might be interested in? Because otherwise, I just know you as a marketing person. Yeah, yeah. And so it's that kind of thing that sits in our ontology that helps companies be more effective. And that continues to grow because the more campaigns, the more customers we work with, the more information that comes in, the more you can build that ontology and be more precise in what you do. I get it. So last question before we shift gears into your role as the CEO, mm -hmm. um, and that is, um, and I just lost the question, uh, where, where do you see the company? Oh, I know. The question is, how do you guys make money? <laughs> What's your financial model? Yeah, well, we're a SaaS company. Okay. Uh, software as a service. Uh, pioneered, obviously, really by Salesforce. Um, so we're a recurring revenue model, people integrators. Um, and... Uh, much like many of the other places, we tend to work on the size of the company and we charge appropriate based on how much they consume. Is it a project, a consume. project fee? No, it's, a, it's an annual recurring contract. Okay. So, you know, somebody comes in. And it's and a contract based on, I mean, is it like we're get, we expect, uh, what's the underpinning of the annual recurring contract fee? Basically, how much uh, information that they have that they want to consume. So if I've got, okay. you know, a million accounts I'm going after and I want to understand a couple of million prospects within those accounts, that will be a certain size. Got it. Okay. That helps. So I want to shift gears. Yep. So you're the CEO of a venture backed company. You've got some serious investors sitting around the table. Is this your first gig as the CEO of a venture backed company? Absolutely. Yeah. Have in your prior work experiences, have you been a, an executive on the executive staff of a venture backed company? I have. Um, so the closest analogy is I actually ran the San Francisco office for Digitas here, which was a full P&L, which okay, then, yeah. but it was not, I mean, I guess it was venture backed, but it was a pretty large company. It got sold to publicists. Yep. Uh, and then I was the chief marketing officer for a company called MIG33, which was backed by Excel oh, and Redpoint. Good firm. And yeah. Um, so this isn't a completely foreign environment. The only difference is, I mean, it's a big difference. You're, you're worrying, you're the long pole in the tent. People are orienting to your vision, your organizational energy and so forth to make this thing successful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will say that having had the experience of being on the board of a venture back thing before I took this on was incredibly helpful coming in. Because you know the perspective. Because you, yeah. Exactly. You, you, you have a good understanding of, of some of those things. Though clearly venture investing is a very person-driven experience right, yeah. just like you know everything else but yeah now it's now it's my show right now it's very much you have the responsibility and also the company is going in the direction that you want to take it obviously with the founder as well who's closely involved um so the company exciting. was formed in 2010 when did you come on board as ceo so i came on board in 2013 just when we founded uh, up until that point there was no office in the u.s so and, at the point where the company decided to move to the u.s 
And you're not a founder. You, no. you parachuted in uh, as, a, yeah. in effect, a professional CEO. Is that Correct. right? Yeah. So how, I mean, just to, if you can spend a minute, what was that like? I mean, effectively, you're, you've got two co-founders who have, a, I would imagine, a fairly high degree of um, a sense of ownership of the company. <laughs> I mean, is it, how hard was it to make that, to, to, to create your own uh, sphere of influence, your own uh, channels of, of authority within the company? Especially when a company where you've got half of your employees that remain right. in Israel. Yeah, so, and, and there's just one founder, Amnon. Oh, sorry. So, okay, yeah. for sure, that relationship is critical. Right? Yeah. And I went in knowing that having, I'm not a technologist. Um, and so to partner with a really strong technology executive was critical for me. I, I could not do this otherwise because venture-backed companies are, in, in our space, a lot of them are technology companies, and you have to have strength there. So I was, I was super excited to have Amnon. At the same time, I think Amnon had the maturity and the understanding of himself to know how I could complement him, especially in the challenges that the company faced as him running it in terms of go-to-market in the US where he's a tech at that point was a technologist living in Israel and trying to deal with that so so we despite one or two rocky meetings at the start which was quite interesting when he demoed the product and I was like how about this we got to know each other through that process um, we survived uh, I thought for a while it was never gonna work but we survived and it's a little bit like that kind of marriage in that way and, and we're and we're pretty close I do think you raise an interesting point though pro and con is we have an Israeli team, speaks in Hebrew, yeah. mostly. Yeah. He speaks Hebrew, and so sometimes it's harder to create my interaction with that team. And so that's been a lot of travel, a lot of, we move a lot of people between Israel and the US, haven't gone the other way, but a lot of people from the US go to Israel. And we're trying to create that so that you know everyone can work better together. But, but it's working well. Uh, for people just joining us, our guest this hour is Doug Buescher, who's the CEO of Leadspace, a customer data platform, and we're talking about uh, Doug's role as a CEO of a venture back, a serious venture back company that's doing great, apparently, <laughs> must be. How often do you travel to Israel? I mean, I, you know, there's this thing called culture. We talk about that a lot in the program, which yeah. is how, how does one go about establishing the appropriate culture for a company? So Amnon's based in Israel. He speaks Hebrew. He's got a whole team of crackerjack R&D uh, you know, engineers working with him. And now you're planted here in San Francisco and Denver. So how, how do you how do the two of so, you guys create culture in the company? So he well, so it was important actually for me that he moved and he has moved to San Francisco. Oh, he did. Oh, wow. Because I agree. Otherwise, yeah, it wouldn't work as well. We would be two completely separate companies. Yeah. Um, we'll get Amnon on the show. Yeah, you next. should. You should do the founder. Uh, so Israeli culture is very interesting. I don't know how much time you spent, but they're a very direct set of people. And as I say if I was gonna work with any set of people in another country, especially a long way away, I think Israelis are some of the best, in that there's very little context to the conversation that you have with them. So a lot of time, the context meaning, you know, people put nice flowery words around it, they Just don't talk really about say what health and the weather. Yeah, all that. And then they say, you know, the English are the best at this, right? Yeah, we're right. like, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> it means I hate it. Really, right. really I hate it. And unless you're there, you can't understand what quite means. It, it can mean everything. Yeah. Uh, Israelis are at the other end of the spectrum. Like they will tell it to you exactly how it is. I'm and that's varnished. very unsettling at first because yeah. a lot of people go, ooh. Um, yeah. 
but it makes for the ability to work at such a distance, you know, very, uh, uh, very, or as effective quite as it can be. Quite clear what right? the task is. It is quite clear what the task is, and there's a, a, a pretty straightforward discussion yeah. about what needs to get done. But, but back to this culture question, you know, I was, I have to admit, when I started this job, I was a big skeptic of culture. Um, and I remember uh, somebody said, oh, you've got to put together some view of your values. And I did, and I put together these four values for the company, uh, maybe three years ago, and I was like, all right, whatever. And to this day, I still use the same chart. Really? I've used that more than anything else in the company. It's very interesting. I've really shifted my views on this. Boy, that, could, that topic could consume a, a show in itself. I just think culture, I mean, it's, it's intangible. You can't hold it up to the light. You can't touch it or, or handle it. Um, but every company seems to value it. And uh, Amnon, I assume, was part of that discussion. He must have looked at the four values. You and he must have talked about it and landed on the four values as the ones that you think would be enduring. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's no way. I mean, arguably, he's more important to the culture than I am. Yeah. But it's, it, and it's not a consensus thing either because it's really how we want yeah. the company to be, but hopefully everyone will manifest it in, in what we do. So, yeah. So <clears throat> you've now evolved from CMO to CEO. I mean, what, what's the skill set that you would identify as being the most important in that transition? I mean, that's kind of a vague question, but I'll, I'll let you take it any way you want. So I remember when I was looking at this job and in part of the job interview, they, they sent me the spreadsheet of the, of the business plan of the company. And I have to admit, as a, a CMO, I was so excited. I was going back to my business school days and my McKinsey days of like looking at numbers. And so what I would say is <laughs> numbers really matter. Yeah. And, and back to our not measurement and analytics, but really understanding the financials of the company. And uh, I've really enjoyed that. But it is quite a change from the way that many CMOs think about things. So I was quite lucky to have both of those arrows. That being said... The number one job as a marketing person, a CMO, whatever you want to call it, is to understand your customer and to understand what is the right solution product to fit that customer's needs. That's what we right. do as marketeers. And I think that's very analogous to the number one problem that venture-backed companies have this day. We call it product market fit, which is the ability to you know, make sure that the thing that you're selling fits a need in the market. Right? I, I used to talk quite a lot at Salesforce and before when I talked to marketing people and I, I felt the marketing people some towards the end of, you know, the nineties had kind of got a little depressed because it was the days of the product people of the engineers, right? The Mark Zuckerberg's and the Pincuses of this world. Yeah. And they built companies because they were really good technologists. And in those days it was hard to build good technology. And I think what's changed with the rise of AWS and Google Cloud and you know, Salesforce and all this stuff is it's actually relatively easy. I'm sure many of your students at you know, Wharton now can go out and come up with the idea of a company and can build it overnight. We with, see a without, lot of competitors. Without spending a dime. Without yeah. you know, an outsourced yeah. team and 99 design yeah. doing yeah. right. And so it comes back to that fundamental concept of not can I build good technology, but do I get product market fit? And so this is the time in my view, to be back to those marketing skills. When I said I was a brand manager wanting to be a CEO, 
I think now we're going to see a lot of more of the marketeer becoming CEO concept because of that that transition. I hope. I mean, I'm a I'm a big believer in the in the function. So, do you like what you're doing as CEO? I love it. Uh, I mean, there must. Be, I mean, they call it work for a reason, right? I mean, what? I don't doubt that you're enthused about what you're doing. What are the parts of being the CEO of a venture backed company? Don't you like? Can I start with something I do like? Sure. <laughs> Just before you depress it. Yeah, no, and uh, your like, investors are listening. Yeah, yeah, right? no. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure somebody will send it to them. Um, so so what, obviously, clearly, the ability to set your own agenda and to define where you're going is the wonder of it, and yep. also to find the right people that you want to work with. Uh, what's hard about it is the, and I was talking to some of my CEO friends about it, it's kind of lonely. You don't really have anyone to talk to. Um, because everyone's got an agenda or an incentive. And then secondarily, you have a different level of responsibility. There's 80 people, you know, they come to Dependent work every on day. Dependent on you. And, you know, making sure that there's always cash in the bank is is a necessity, otherwise you can't pay them. And, and that's a different kind of thing from, am I doing my job well? So uh, sometimes that keeps me awake at night. Um, I was going to say that, I mean, I've, I've heard this before, that, the most acute point of anxiety is knowing that people are depending on you to keep the ship pointed in yep. the right direction. That's right. So we have only a, a few minutes left, actually a couple minutes, maybe one minute. Um, <laughs> you know, people are out there, aspiring entrepreneurs listening to you. I mean, what, what do they need to know? You know, what's one or two, at, one or two attributes that, that will make them successful as the founder and CEO of an early stage company? Uh, I think persistence is kind yeah. of critical. Um, you know, my team has this thing where I used to say every quarter, okay, this is going to be the most important quarter for the company for whatever reason, right? And there's always this up and there's this down and something's going to be absolutely critical or it's not. And I guess in the first year or two, I suddenly thought uh, next year or next month is going to be better and it's not. And that level of persistence goes along with that level of responsibility. And uh, I think that you know, really is, is important of, of the ability to deal with those ups and downs. It is to weather the, the peaks yeah. and troughs. And just to, to recognize that you're going to come out the other side. And sometimes the VCs, the good VCs I have, are really helpful at, because they see, you know, 20 companies yeah. over long periods of time, they can give you that perspective in a way that you're like in the trenches every day fighting the good fight. We are out of time. I told you this hour was going to go fast. Doug, thanks for joining us. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, where can people go to le learn more about Leadspace? Well, come to www.leadspace.com or send me an email or follow me on Twitter. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.